0: In this episode of the Mate podcast, I sit down with Jeff Graw, the lead developer of Dominus Galaxia, and speak to him about his game, so stay tuned. Thanks, Rob. So, Jeff, tell me about who you are. Tell me a little bit about your background and a little bit about Dominus Galaxia before we jump in and ask some more specific questions.
1: Okay, yeah, sure. So, my background is that I originally wanted to be a musician. Uh, I took a couple years of computer science and then I dropped out of that, tried to become a musician. That worked as well as it always does. Uh, ended up teaching drums for a few years. Then I ended up uh, working nine one one and dispatching ambulances for a few years. And decided, you know what? What am I doing with my life? I want to make video games. If I continue this way, I on you know this opportunity will pass. So I kind of just decided to quit my job and jump in with both feet and uh, learn the ropes and everything. To begin with, I was going to make like this top-down 2D shooter uh, mixed with a MOBA sort of thing, which uh, didn't get very far. And event- and afterwards, I decided, you know what? Uh, I like 4X-based strategy games. Nobody's made a game like Master of Orion 1, uh, and that's my favorite of all time. The SOTS 1 comes kind of close, and that's also an excellent game. I love SOTS. So I decided, you know what? I could try my hand at it. It'll probably only take six months. It's a simple game. So five years later... has it been five years probably more like four and a half but in any case so i started working on my own game and there was also this individual his name is brent patterson he was working on another sort of Mu one type spiritual successor game at the time it was called beyond being and i just sort of reached out to him and has well, I actually reached out to him in the past to talk about Master Brian 1 and everything, and eventually I'm just like, hey, look at this game that I'm making. And he's like, that looks that looks great. It didn't look great. It was terrible looking, but it looked better than Beyond Bayonet, apparently. And he's like, you know what? We should combine forces. Unity is C-Sharp, right? I'm a C-Sharp developer. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So we sort of merged our efforts, and we went along, and eventually it ended up, uh, Brett took more of a backseat role, and it sort of ended up, me being in the front and it's been a while and you know what we're in closed beta right now and i think the the game is going pretty good it's pretty fun it still has a ways to go just recently released a major update with improvements to the diplomacy system and the addition of spying spying is somewhat unique but it still probably needs a little bit of polish uh compared to Master of orion one of all the features that i want which is all the features that um uh, I think are good, and none of them that I th- think are bad, which is pretty much only the uh the galactic Council wound. I can go into that later why i don't like the uh that mechanic i've pretty much got ninety five percent of them implemented theoretically I just need to implement a few specials, biological warfare and uh, a few events, and I pretty much have parody. Probably been speaking too long, so I'll, <laughs> and I'll let you jump in.
0: So, no, for those that don't know why you spec- specified Master of Orion 1 and Sword of the Stars 1, what is it about those two games that you think is different than every other game out there right now, like Space 4X games?
1: Well, it's interesting, and it comes down a lot to philosophy. You know, I've, I've done a lot of philosophizing since I've started working on Dominus Galaxia. Uh, before, I was just thinking, you know what? I love Massive Orion 1. I don't think any games been that good, and I want to do something that's better. I basically want to make Massive Orion 2 from the vision of Massive Orion 1 if it hadn't become like a hybridization with civilization at the time. Um, but I think what makes Sword of the Stars and Massive Orion unique is what I'd call the strategic signal-to-noise ratio. Whereas those games tend to have a lot less minutiae, a lot less uh, busy work, micromanagement. And those tasks tasks all tend to be non-strategic in nature. They're sort of there to fill time, to make you feel like you're doing something. And to an extent, that's also fine. Uh, It's fun to interact with things. It's fun to... And mass variant, well, maybe not a mass variant too. It's not fun to do colony management after a while, but it is fun to you know watch your colonies develop and plant all the buildings and do all that sort of uh, stuff in 4X games. And to a large extent, if you strip all that out of 4X games, there just wouldn't be very much to do. Um, but uh, the the strength of sort of the Stars in Mass Variant One are that they're about as strategically deep. As any other Forex except for you don't have any of the noise so the choices that you're making the actions that you're doing tend to be more strategic in nature and also you don't get bogged down and the pacing is a lot better the weakness is that the world is a little bit less rich it's less concrete it's more abstract and it's a little bit more difficult to lose yourself in the world
0: okay so having said that I'm curious to know how do you plan on overcoming idle turns because for me, when you say something like, you know, we're kind of stripping things out and we're making it so that there's less, quote unquote, like busy work, then I start to think, all right, well, then there's a lot of intern mashing. So where, where do you think that you're going to do? Where How do you think you're going to overcome that?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. And I absolutely think that's a very pertinent one, um, because um, compared to Master of Orion, uh, we've streamlined some n- less strategic parts we've made colony management uh, quite a bit simpler it's easier and more straightforward to send ships you can queue up orders and everything so there's actually less that you need to do but what i found as a result of that is that the game feels a little bit more empty that a lot of the a lot of that busy work sort of takes your mind off things and keeps you focused and well just to Put things in perspective, there are entire mobile games that are based on nothing else than clicking on things. Clicking on things in and of itself is kind of fun. And if you have not enough to do, then it becomes, you know, quite a bit less fun potentially. But generally the idea is to try and fill that up with interesting and strategic content. Cause there's definitely a little bit of a gap even compared to massive Orion one or sort of the stars where you do end up hitting and turn a little bit more than I'd like. Uh, so for example, you might have various leveling systems where if you uh, destroy a certain amount of ships, you get to level up your empire or your emperor and choose new traits that are randomly selected. Or maybe there's a bit more of a meta game where they're interdimensional aliens uh, that you have to work with on a more abstract level, whereas the other empires that are existing with you are on a more concrete level. But basically, the idea would be to fill that up with stuff that is strategic in nature, and I'm not quite there yet, but um, I have some general ideas. We'll see how much come to fruition. Worst comes to worst, I can always make the game less streamlined and more clunky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, so then that actually brought up a good question in my mind too. When you mentioned basically that you have plans, what what what's going on now? So you are you're saying that you're almost in a way future complete to a degree. You're close to being you know on par with what Master Ryan One had. So what do you what are your
1: maybe- on par or superior? Right. So it's not just parity with Master of Orion One. We've already arguably went beyond Master Ryan One in the norm. Uh, various areas, more in-depth combat, multi-side combat, infinite tech tree, lots of stuff.
0: Right. Yeah. No. Those are great points too. And to probably even make a better, uh, another point too. I, I think that uh, everything you, everything Master of Ryan one has done, in in my experience, you've done better. So that's those the great things. So you've taken. I the-
1: don't quite agree with you there, but I'm my own. I'm my own worst critic in that way. Yeah. And- uh, for example. Just the presentation and the feeling and drawing you in, I think, needs to work. A lot of that is a function of just having an incomplete game, but it's something that a lot of people don't think about. Do I like this game because the mechanics are good or because the presentation is good and it draws me in?
0: Well, I think you have a presentation that works really well. So uh, this is something that I hope that that people do go out and look at now because I think that Dominus Galaxy has a presentation, has a look to it that's very unique. It has you can immediately tell that it's looking you're looking at a Dominus Galaxia game. So that that to me is unique.
1: Already, is one word? Yeah.
0: Well, no. That's it's, it's 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 very pretty. It's it is a very pretty game, and I think that anyone looking at it would say, yeah, the oh, alien models are great. The galaxy map looks amazing. So the
1: illustrations are great. We have a great illustrator. Um, I need more money to pay the illustrator, but um, that guy's great. I have no complaints about that whatsoever. I do have uh, some other areas that I'm not really satisfied with. But it's great of you to say that you think it looks.
0: Yeah, at least you have one fan, (laughs) right? So exactly. then, so, okay, now you're mentioning money. Talk to me, what's the plan? Are you, you're one man, I'm sure you don't have infinite amounts of money. So how do you go from here?
1: Yeah, to be fair, I do have a few other collaborators. I'm the brunt of the development effort, but it's not just, it's not only me working on it. Uh, but, uh, in terms of funding, I'm pretty much at the point now where I definitely need more funding in the past. I've said, you know, I'm going to do a Kickstarter soon, found some more money, put the Kickstarter off, thought, you know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I want to get it better before I go to Kickstarter. Um, but right now it's sort of come to a head. So there are a couple potential financial deals besides Kickstarter that I don't think that I'm allowed to get into. Uh, but for now, those are just uh, more contingencies. I'm going ahead, assuming that those won't uh, become anything, and working towards the Kickstarter as fast as I can. Uh, the idea there is Kickstarter is being a bit of a wasteland. Um, you can make of it what you will. So you could say that people are tired, people are jaded, pe- other people haven't followed through, people have lost money. It's a lot of different things in the forex genre in particular has probably had it rougher than about any other in terms of actually delivering for the backers. Uh, So my general idea is I'm going to release the current beta build, something very similar to what you're playing as freeware, as an enticement and just, you know, stamp up this back us on Kickstarter. And, you know, it's a free game. It's a fully playable game. And hopefully that shows, you know, that this is a very low risk proposition and, the majority of the money is going to be into leveling up that presentation to getting as close to the AAA production values as possible, and how possible that is will probably be a massive uh, factor of how much funding I'm able to actually get in the in the long run.
0: And I imagine it's at least a significant portion of that has to go towards artists, right? So I know they're not cheap, and what the you
1: the majority of it, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and so that brings up my next point too. So if you don't succeed at Kickstarter, where do you go? Do you look to, to maybe uh, look at other things? What do you do?
1: Yeah, I, I'll probably cross that bridge when I come to it. There is potentially one or two publishers and one possible uh, private investor. Um, but, you know, worst comes to worst, I either just throw it up on early access right away. I don't want to do that. I feel that if you're on early access forever, most of the time, not all of the time, there are exceptions. But most of the time, it just ends up draining all of your momentum from launch, and you just end up spinning your wheels. Uh, but that's a possibility. The other possibility is, you know, I find a job somewhere and just try and put in as much time as possible into Dominus Galaxia. Obviously, that's not something that I want to do. But um, hopefully, you know, uh, I think the the chances of me ending up on the street are pretty slim. Uh, one way or another, the game's going to get done. It's just a matter of how good it is when it is done. Uh, theoretically, I could probably really, you know, quickly slap something together in six months with how close it is and release that. I just don't want to. I want it to be really good when it releases. And that was my
0: next question. So, what are you thinking? of the timeline? Are you saying? Are you thinking a year from now? A year and a half? I mean, are you, are you looking at the end of 2020?
1: I'd like to think the end of 2020. I've been pretty famously bad at um, predicting. Um, <laughs> Uh, sort of predicting when things are going to happen. But um, a large part of that is probably because I end up working on things that I want to work on rather than things that are needed. For example, uh, we have an optional Star Lane feature, uh, which you know is pretty cool in that some people hate Star Lanes, some people love Star Lanes, and at the least no matter where you lie, it gives you a different sort of gameplay dimension and more replayability. It really does change the dynamics of the game to play with or without them. Um, when but instead of Star Lanes, I probably should have been working on implementing special more special devices or um, something else that the game currently lacks.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that it, I mean future creep gets the people it gets to everybody really so but I think I do like that your your plan was to make both them optional because I for me, I've gone back and forth between Star Lanes and non starlanes And because I am sort of a Master of 1 purist, I I tend to opt not having these star lanes. But I think that's great, you know, like options never hurt anybody unless options start (laughs) getting in the way of significant gameplay mechanics. So I think you're doing all right. So while we're still on the topic of Kickstarter, can you talk about your timeline to get there now? So I know you're close because you're really focused on getting to that, you know, Kickstarter finish line. And then are you comfortable talking about how much you're looking for?
1: You know what, uh, I'm working towards it really quickly. Financial situation is uh, pretty high pressure at the moment. So I'm going to try and have something within a week. It might be a bit sooner. It might be a bit later. Uh, something else might happen with one of the other possible funding options in the meantime. So I don't want to make any hard promises, but I'm aiming for within a week. Absolutely. In terms of how much I want to ask for, that's uh, I'm still going a little bit back and forth on it. The truth is, I probably don't need that much just to finish the game, and it's. A, I think it's a pretty decent game the way it is. It's not, and it's not a masterpiece yet. That's what I want to aim for, and I want to also aim for really high production values. So it's almost a little bit of a sliding scale. So if I get like twenty thousand dollars, then I can finish the game. It might not be what I'm hoping for, but it'll probably be. You know, it'll be better than Astro Four X. Let's say. Um, <laughs> If I get $200,000, uh, then I can probably, you know, redo the interface, redo a lot of the graphics, uh, hire somebody for shaders or contract that out. I'm not very good at shaders at all. And, you know, that's something you really need to get those triple A v- production values in, uh, in, uh, in a space Forex x game, because it's all about how you portray space. It's not about making a million different models or anything like that. It's about doing a few things really good, um, So yeah, and in terms of stretch goals, it's like, um, I know that I probably should do them, I might do them, it feels a little bit dishonest to put them in, because it's like, um, whether or not I, all the stuff that I'd put as a stretch goal, I'm going to try and do anyway. It's just a matter of time and funding. Uh, So one of the optional features that I want is to have more than one planet per system. Right now it's like Massive Orion or Sword of the Stars 1, you have one planet per system, it's... Easier to manage that way. It's a little bit uh, boring at the same time. Um, everybody that's done multiple planets per system, there's been a trade off. It, it's possible it would basically be some through some sort of UI trickery that I might be able to do something better uh, and make it more streamlined. But that's a feature that I could put as a stretch goal, but I may or may not get to it. And if I like, if I didn't meet that tr- stretch goal, I'd still try and do it. And if I did meet that stretch goal, I don't know if I'd be able to do it or have enough time anyway. So it feels like putting in those stretch goals just uh, puts in more opportunities for me to make a liar out of myself. Uh, another thing that I want to do is have an optional real-time uh, mode to the game. And that's also another way that you can uh, combat the empty turns as you just switch it to real-time. That would kind of be a factor of a few things that I want to do that would be prerequisites, which involve moving the AIs onto their own threads that are executing in parallel with the player and then moving most of the execution in terms of production and movement into time slices, where a turn is just a significant amount of time slice and real time would just be very short time slices. Uh, if I can get those two, those uh, that would be a very good um foundation for a real-time mode and it would hopefully come really easily after that the other reason for the um ais that are all executing in parallel basically moving to a client server architecture where each ai is its own client and then everything gets sent to the server which would be on the same pc and single player afterwards all the processing gets done and then at the start of the turns um you know, all that information gets shunted back to the clients and there's not that much interaction between clients except for during the turn processing phase. Um, that would be a great, um, prerequisite for a strong network multiplayer experience. Currently we do have split screen multiplayer, not split screen, hot seat multiplayer. And that's also a good foundation. Um, so things are set up for multiplayer already on one PC, and if we can uh, move to that internal client-server-type architecture with the AIs, even for single-player, then that's something that just flows naturally into multiplayer. And besides making turn processing really quick because you're no longer waiting for AIs to work, um, you know, it would make it very, very simple to actually get network multiplayer going without having this giant um, hassle.
0: So you and I have known each other long enough. We've actually, uh, for those who don't know, we both kind of co-starred on the old forex gaming subreddit podcast as well and i've got to know you well to the point that i know that you are your harshest critic by far and away you are your harshest critic so tell me if you could and i know this is gonna be a stretch for you but can you tell me what the strengths of dominus galaxia are right now what you think will draw people in and what you consider to be highlight features of the game
1: A uh, good question uh i'd there's two different ways to approach this, and one is the um, the inside versus the outside stuff. So inside, I think um, because I'm my own harshest critic, and I was a terrible programmer when I started this project, I will uh, completely admit that. Um, since I've went I've went leaps and bounds, and I have this weird sort of competitive impulse where anything that I um, Anything that I deem like is important uh, becomes part of my identity and I sort of need to be the best at it that I can be. And if anybody around me is better at, say, I am I play drums, so if there's somebody around me that's better at drums than me or can do something that I can't or a technique, I'm like, I need to learn that. It's just sort of like a compulsive need for me. And it's sort of the same thing with programming. Uh, and definitely, you know, teaming up with Brent was great for that because he's a professional software developer. He's been doing things for a long time, uh, and I'm like, yeah, I'm always interacting with Brent. <laughs> I must at least reach parity with Brent. So, it, so that helped. If only John Carmack uh, was one of my <laughs> contacts, that it would be perfect. Um, but anyway, the strength internally is I've spent a lot of time refactoring things to the point where. A lot of the systems are just super elegant in terms of their implementation. There's still, it's a video game. There's still a few rough edges. There's a few things that I'm not proud of and I'm like, that's kind of gross. But like the fundamentals are all very, very, very strong. I also have to contribute a little bit of that to another contributor, Ivan who basically, he's uh, doing his own little nd 4X game called Star Eater, but uh, he has basically contributed in working on the data loading system. And almost everything in uh, Dominus Galaxy is data-driven. You can go into the data files and mod things to your heart's content. Um, There isn't such a good system for loading mods right now. It's basically just dropping a whole bunch of files into a directory. That's something I want to improve on. Uh, But for example, special devices. Uh, recently, this year, uh, it's almost finalized, at least. There's still a few more properties that I need to expose. With special devices, um, it's all text-based. You don't need to touch a line of code, and you can make really interesting special devices just in the text, which would say, be like, uh, I want this to have a range of two uh, two hexes. I want it to impact enemies and friends, but not neutrals. I want it to cast a shockwave and anybody uh, that's two hexes in diameter and any unit that's hit with that shockwave takes uh, 5 to 10 damage and has a 33% chance of being disabled. And at the same time, I'm going to only give this special 10 ammo. It's going to be able to fire every other turn. It's going to regenerate one ammo every 10 turns, uh, and it's going to reduce the number of hit points on my on the caster by 20% just by having it. And you can do that all on a text file. None of it needs to be hard-coded. Uh, so that amount of flexibility, I think, is great and lets me potentially do a lot of things in the future. Like, one thing that I want to do with Dominus Galaxia is I want to make a good spiritual successor to Master of Orion 1, something that you'd be happy in an alternate universe sticking the label Master of 2 on. That said... Another thing that I want to do is have a very moddable game and a game with a lot of different gameplay options, almost like framework for 4X games where you just go in and pick your options. I want real time on the strategic map. I want turn-based combat. I don't want star lanes. I want to colonize things with colony ships. And, you know, I want uh, production to be this fast and I want research to work this way and various other things like that. The idea basically being if you don't like one or two things with Dominus Galaxy and we're all very picky about what we like in forex games that, you know, it's simple enough to change it or it's already exposed in the options and you can change it. So internally that's the strength of Dominus Galaxy is that I've spent a lot of time making the code base really good. It's really flexible, really expandable and it can go in a lot of different directions. In term and I'm sorry that I've been speaking so long just on the internal stuff but what you're probably interested in is you know what are the good features what makes it fun and all that
0: yeah give me give me the highlights give me the yeah. uh, the back of the box stuff
1: so I'd say that uh, it's very streamlined uh, some of the presentation might be be a little bit better. It's sort of a little bit more aimed at people who've already played Master of Orion 1, so the onboarding could be better. It can be a little bit daunting to look at, but it's very simple to manage your colonies, to move fleets around. Besides that, the combat system is pretty unique. It's A lot of these are just going to sound like bullet point features where uh, you know, like uh, you can have more than one side in a combat event, which I don't know... I can't. I'm sure somebody else has done it. I can't think of anybody else who does tactical combat that way. But uh, basically, if you have like five sides, the map will grow, and then everybody starts on like a quadrant of uh, some sort of polygon, polygonal uh, battlefield. Right now, uh, usually a hexagon or a rectangle, depending on the number of sides. You can auto resolve your combat anywhere. Uh, so you can actually enter the combat, uh, kill a few people decide, you know, this is boring, this is obvious, I'm going to win. I'll just hit to Resolve and you see everything sort of happen at warp speed and then you get a readout right there. Um, Besides that, the diplomacy system is kind of interesting that I just recently implemented. Well, first, a little bit of reference is that uh, one of the goals for Dominus Galaxy is to have a liberated AI. And that means that the AI plays by the same rules as the player, that there are no artificial limitations on it. And to a large extent, that philosophy says, if we implement a feature and we won't handicap the AI, the AI will try and abuse that feature. If it ends up being that that feature isn't fun, then we rework it, put on constraints on the feature, or we just get rid of it or replace it with something else. So in this context, diplomacy is interesting in that um, a, a feature that I dislike in a lot of 4X games is diplomacy modifiers, and that's because they're so one-sided. So let's say you have uh, a certain AI player and you're playing a, a certain AI as well. So you're playing the humans, typical, stereotypical good at diplomacy race and they're playing another race. Now they're nicer to you. Why? Because you're playing the humans. Uh, that doesn't really work if an AI is playing in its own self-interest or if you're even playing another player or if the AI is playing the humans and you're playing somebody else, it's completely one-sided and, and, it's not very strategic. Uh, the idea with Dominus Galaxia is that, you know, having a race that's good at diplomacy, that's cool from a narrative standpoint. It adds, you know, a certain amount of narrative depth and helps you sort of craft this emergent sort of history that's happening and makes the races have more character and all that. It's all And that part is all good. So the idea is to try and have your cake and eat it too in terms of design. So in this case, for example, you could have a race that's really good at diplomacy, but instead of just compelling everybody else to you know treat you better, which works when you have AIs, it doesn't work the other way around, you have that drive certain externalities that then organically make people want to treat you better. So, for example, maybe you get you both gain a mutual benefit. Your trade treaties yield higher. You get tw- twice as much income from trade, or you can, uh, you know, you, or your people become happier when you're friendly with these people. Some other sort of bonus that happens when you have good relationship with the humans or whatever the diplomacy races. So then, both AIs and players have a reason to be friendly with this uh, with this empire. You still get the same narrative benefit, but you don't get any of the, you know, design baggage from having that. And I've probably went on a huge diversion here, but <laughs> going no, back I, to... I like where you
0: went, because I think that the the last part about how that would work in your game sounds amazing. I've always wondered how or why it is that people don't consider that stuff. Like, And, and that th- th- your your solution to that sounds great.
1: Oh, thanks. And... To be, to be honest, there is no sort of diplomacy race in Dominus Galaxia at the moment, but uh, that, that's mostly because I've just finished with this diplomacy stuff uh, recently, and I just haven't had time to do it. It's something I fully intend to do, and it's not necessarily that difficult to do either. Uh, but the way that diplomacy currently works in Dominus Galaxia is that external events and a little bit of randomness will drive a relationship meter between you and other every other empire. The difference is that this relationship meter doesn't strictly govern how the other AIs feel about you. It governs how each empire feels about each other, like your subjects versus their subjects. And to be fair right now, the AI kind of works as if a little bit like it does govern how the AI feels about you. But the idea here is that if you have a very good relationship that it has certain effects. And based on those effects, that will drive how the AI eventually, or other players for that matter, uh, eventually want to you know, interact with you. So if you have a high relationship value or if you have a trade treaty or a research treaty, you gain certain mutual vulnerabilities to one another. So the higher your relationship, the easier it is to spy on one another, which also... You know, I hate arguments for realism, but it makes sense from a realism perspective. It's intuitive. If I'm, if you're friendly with the country, it's going to be easier to, you know, get people in there and spy on them. Yeah, no, if
0: I you're, feel like that's logically something that would make sense. Yeah, like you're Canadian, right?
1: Exactly. It would be very easy for you to spy on us, <laughs> right? No, that's we're do versa. All-
0: And I vice versa, right? So, like, I feel like Canadian spies could be all over this place, and and American American people wouldn't know because, like, what what do we have to fear from Canada? But you could be just stealing out of our tech and all that stuff. You know, who knows? Shh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, and and the reverse is also true, right? So that's so if you're getting spied on all the time, that's a good uh, impetus to want to go to war and destroy their fleets and everything, because a state of war. Uh, will reduce their abilities to spy on you, all, also your abilities t- to spy on them. Trade treaties in Domus Galaxia, you, you both gain income, but you gain that into the reserve and you take a maintenance fee. So it's kind of like all of your colonies become a little bit less productive based on that maintenance fee, but then you have a little bit more of a slush fund to play around with. In addition to that, you get to see fully up-to-date information on all of their colonies within your logistics range and vice versa. And again, that's a little bit of the mutual vulnerability. So you can see their border worlds that are within your range that you can attack and you can be like, Hey, these guys are really weak. I know this because I have a trade treaty and I always get up-to-date intelligence on them with research treaties. Sorry, I'll go back a bit with, uh, with trade treaties, it's easier for you to launch sabotage missions against your enemies and vice versa with trade treaties. It's easier to launch espionage missions, basically steal technologies. Another thing that we did with the diplomacy system, the new one, is tech trading. Usually ends up being a fiasco in terms of design and balance. And the issue here is that whenever you implement tech trading, it's like as a player, if if I have six opponents and I trade one technology with six opponents, even if they're getting the better technology out of the trade, I've gotten six technologies out of that. Each of them have only gotten one. And it's It's entirely possible to code an AI to do that as well. But that's unfun. You're getting spammed each turn for tech trades. And everybody ends up with all the techs because everybody's trading all the time. And you sort of strip the uniqueness. Sorry, you you wanted to say something really quick. I just
0: was going to say that it's a feature I normally turn off almost immediately, if I can.
1: Right. Uh, Fair enough. But at the same time, it's like... uh, it adds one more degree of freedom to the, to, to the diplomacy game. And originally, Dominus Galaxy didn't have it. We thought the same way as you did. Well, this always just ends up being abused. Why have it? This is a bad feature. This is bad design. We don't want that. But then we had this really simplistic diplomacy system that it just, for me, it didn't feel very good uh it, it just didn't feel very immersive you didn't feel like you were interacting with other leaders or that very much was happening or that you could do very much you didn't feel very much in the way of freedom and this is the big tension point in the design for dominus galaxy that i've come around to my original thought was you know i want to br- boost that signal to noise ratio for strategic choices way higher and then eventually came around to you know what i've i've gone r- rid of a lot of the non-strategic stuff and now things just sort of feel empty. So now I need to add more stuff and have that be strategic and instead of focusing on reducing the noise, focus on boosting the signal. But anyway, back to tech trading. Randomly just had this idea one day that, um, you know what, uh, what if you just uh, add some constraints to it so that it's less likely, so you know, you still have it, but you sort of bound the, abil- the, the amount that people can abuse the system by just trading all the time. And the idea there is that there's an opportunity cost. First, you can't trade with anybody unless you have a research treaty. And second, whoever requests the trade has to pay a facilitation fee. The idea being if you want to, you know, rationalize it from a realism perspective, I don't think you need to. But if you do, the idea would be, you know, exchanging this technology. It's not free. It's, it's not cheap. Uh, you know, there, there's obviously going to be a cost of that to learn everything. And the idea with tech trading is the person who requests that is the person who pays all of it. So ideally you want to sell trade techs as often as possible. You just don't want to request the tech trades. <laughs> you want the other person to do that. Yeah, and okay. and in uh, practice that basically tempers the you know, the optimal strategy. So the optimal strategy is no longer just trading techs all the time. And to be fair, you know, this is the first uh, pass at it. It might need a little bit more balance. I might need to adjust the costs, but theoretically, you should be able to get yourself to a point where, you know, you can have the AI working in a way that it's not crippled. You can have the tech trading system working in a way by crippled I mean not intentionally crippled because that's what everybody does with tech trading if it's or most other features. If the feature, if we want the feature, but it's not fun if the AI uses it properly then the AI doesn't get to use it properly. And that's pretty common. But, uh, the idea is, you know, the player can use this properly and it's not going to break the game. The AI can use it properly and it's not going to ruin the fun.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. Um, something you mentioned before about your gameplay elegance, um, and, and something that stood out to me as I've played is your ship designer system. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because I, I think people are going to be like, oh, cool, that sounds really cool. So not only are you designing ships, but tell yeah. us a little bit about that random element that you've added.
1: Oh, there's a few things with ship design, actually. It's very similar to Master of 1 and Master of 2. It's sort of like a mix between the two where you have more slots and stuff to do things with, um, like Master of 2. But like Master of 1, you have deflector shields that reduce damage instead of shields that Absorb a certain amount of damage and then fail. That's just because we use stacks, and that's a lot easier with stacks. Theoretically, you could do it without stacks, but you—it'd be hard to do facings with stacks because uh, if you have a stack of 100 units, uh, then it doesn't really matter that you're hitting one facing so much because you kill one, you kill one unit, and then the next one has a full uh, hit points on the next facing, and et cetera, and et cetera. So it doesn't matter if you like. Get one facing down a little bit that turn. I'm digressing though. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I digress a lot. I'm sorry about that.
0: No, it's perfectly fine. I'll
1: get back to I'll get back to the ship design. So the first thing that we do um, is just added like um, a little modifier for specials. So specials are interesting in that in both Mass of One and Two, to a large extent, you end up getting these are the specials that I want to have, and I'll just always put these specials on. Um, And also there's an issue with the miniaturization system in both games because you have interesting specials in the early tech tree. You need to, otherwise the game isn't very fun for the early game. Uh, But because of this, these specials end up being so miniaturized by the end game that they basically become free. And you just always put them on because they're interesting and good, And their usefulness isn't really, you know, a factor of their level. It's more of a factor of what they do. Um, So really simple way that we came up with to combat that is, you know, you can put on one special and that's free. And then for every subsequent special that you put on, the total cost of the ship uh, grows by 5%. So there's a little bit of pressure there. You can put on lots of specials if you want, but you're going to have a really expensive ship. So ideally, you, you, you're a little bit picky. Uh, the other thing that we do with ship design, and this is an optional feature. I really like it. Most people really like it, but it does sort of, it slows down the game a little bit. It slows down the pacing. On the flip side, it's also another thing to do, which is good to fill up space. Uh, right now, there's a little bit of an issue with uh, just clicking next turn, and that helps with that is that we have a crafting system for the ships. And I don't think I've seen this in another 4X, but it's kind of Diablo-esque, where after you submit a ship design, it basically goes to your engineers, and you can decide how much money you want to invest in it, how soon you want it, the quality, the, um, the amount of variance in quality. Basically, you fill out a number of properties, and based on that, X turns later. The design is finalized, and you might have... It might be a little bit faster, a little bit hardier. You might have a few or a few less uh, uh, weapons than you intended. Basically, the designers, they know what you want, and they're able to execute that to an extent. Sometimes they'll exceed your expectations, sometimes not, largely a factor of how much money you drop in. One interesting thing is that this is going to tie in with espionage. It doesn't yet, but this is going to happen in the future, probably by the end of the year, is that – with the intelligence system, we're going to have intelligence for ship designs. A ship design comes out from an enemy, and you have no idea what it is. You interact with it. It fires some um, ion cannons. You know it has ion cannons. Uh, it hits you more often. Okay, it has 10 ion cannons. You blow it up. Okay, so it probably has between 200 and 300 hit points. And you slowly start gaining intelligence that way. And also, if your spies are successful, they might be able to uh, figure out the stats for an enemy ship. They also might be able to figure out weak points, and so you can gain a higher critical th- uh, hit uh, chance against those ships. And that's pretty interesting. Another interesting thing would be the ability to sabotage the design process as it's happening. So if this design takes ten turns to finalize, and you have a sabotage mission, it could be you know throw a throw a monkey wrench into the works, and then uh, th- those spies succeed, and your ship design comes out kind of crummy. Uh, That sort of interesting uh, gameplay is something that uh, I'm hoping to have by the end of the year for that in particular, but first I'm going to work on just finishing the rest of the specials and bioweapons, some remaining random events, and I think there's one other thing that I'm forgetting, but uh, that's pretty high on the priority list.
0: Yeah, for me, I think it's a standout feature because you're right. I, I don't think anyone's ever tried to like add like Diablo roles basically into your into your ship design, and I think it's it's fantastic. I, I've played enough of it, but I haven't actually seen anything like this. Are there chances for like legendary roles? Like, do you occasionally, if you just get super lucky, come out with a, a, a you know a ship design that's just that far exceeds your expectations?
1: Yes and no. You do sometimes get a ship design that's really exceeding your expectations, but uh, there's no sort of critical success. That's something that I plan on adding. I don't want to make any promises, though. I haven't added yet the idea that um, you can gain uh, besides just, you know, less or more hull, you might gain specific traits uh, on that ship. So, if, for example, it might be like 20 uh, percent more vulnerable to beam weapons or something of that nature
0: very cool I like that idea very much so Jeff you and I have spoken a lot and I and you're on our discord and forums and lot and you've you've probably been one of the, the few people that I can consider one of the deepest thinkers on the Forex genre as a whole and I've always wanted to kind of pick your brain here so
1: oh thanks the, for saying that uh, I'll, I'll try and be humble yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well no philosophically like you 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 generate a lot of discussion on the genre as, as and it, and its sure, all, sure. it's always yeah, and you've always brought up good questions. You've always sort of analyzed it in ways that I have never done, and I think have you know, you know, made me consider some aspects of the, the genre that I never okay. thought about before. So, with all that being said, tell me what's wrong with forex genre right now.
1: Oh, this is going to be hard to do without uh, making enemies. Um,
0: so, clearly, so, I don't think you're. Yeah, okay. Let's preface this by saying that you're not. <laughs> you're not out to make enemies. I think I that as no. someone who's a, you clearly again, you're someone who's very. Thoughtful and philosophical in the genre, and I, I I truly appreciate your critical thoughts on some things. So I'm I'm oh, thank you. I think some people will be interested to hear some of your ideas and thoughts.
1: Okay, so ju- I'm just going to preface this. I'm a, until I released Dominus Galaxia" to the to the you know. To the world I'm sort of a nobody so if, and I'm probably going to be taking shots at people that have been a lot more commercially successful than I have been so uh, take that into account take everything that I say here with a, with a grain <laughs> of salt uh, I don't I'm, I'm not sure that I've earned sort of the, the right to sort of come across as an authority on this.
0: No we're after- just too, we're two okay. guys having a conversation <laughs> <Sure>. Jeff <laughs> I'm just curious I'm picking your brain okay. a little bit because I think yeah. some of the things you've said ring true with me.
1: Sure. So, um, uh, there's one, there's a few things that, um, yeah, where to begin. Okay. So, uh, I'll just start with something that's probably kind of obvious is that there's a lot of copying, uh, specifically to two games, mass Orion two and civilization, uh, a lot of copying there and copying isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, I, I, I know Troy sort of is always saying he wants to say fresh he wants to see fresh stuff. And, you know, I don't like this because it's happened before. And I may agree with him and practice a lot of the time, but I completely disagree with him in principle. I think that there that's a bit of a genetic fallacy in terms of, you know, dissing something based on where it came from or its originality. Something is good or it isn't good, or it works in a specific context or it doesn't. Uh, the, and to be fair, I've taken a lot of cues from master Brian one. If I were to make a four X game from scratch right now, I'd probably do something completely different, but I'm certainly guilty of my share of this as well. Uh, that said, I think a lot of the issue would be if you're copying and you aren't thinking about the larger context. Uh, so I've probably been a little bit vocal about this in the past, but there's a, The civilization-style movement system, if you know what I mean, uh, especially sort of the simultaneous movement where everybody's moving at the same time a few games do, especially in multiplayer. So everybody's taking their turns at the same time, basically. And also, usually on a hex grid, but the ability to set like uh, multiple points throughout the map, when you do that, your units tend to move at the end of the turn And you don't get to see in the information that they uncover and take action on it. Hopefully you understand what I'm – I don't know if I've sort of uh, said that as well as I could have. But uh, you know what system I'm talking about, I hope. I'm speaking about a very specific turn system that's used in like Civilization, Gelsiv, Age of Wonders, et et cetera.
0: Right, yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm with you.
1: But um, I think this makes sense in a grid-based context. You might be able to say, okay, there are issues with a grid-based context in terms of when you increase the scale so much, it ends up being that you have so many units to manage, and if you're managing them ideally in civilization, you are moving each unit each uh, for each step. You aren't you aren't uh, setting up multiple turn sort of thing because when you move immediately, you gain vision. You you see things. You can act sooner. Uh, you win the race condition, the order of operations is in your favor. So you end up having this uh, system where you can set sort of multiple moves and then it happens at the end of the turn. And if you're playing, uh, if you're playing ideally, you just don't do that. So you end up moving everybody all the time and it's a big hassle. But this makes sense in a a grid-based system simply because, you know, if you just set like a, in a node-based system like massive Orion, you say, I want my fleet to go from here to here, and you click turn, and everybody moves at the same time. And then you have these very specific sort of focus points, which are the planets or the solar systems, and that's where the events happen. In a grid, if you try and do all the movement at the same time, everybody just ends up moving past each other, and you need to s- somehow accommodate that. So I completely understand why this movement system is used in a in a grid-based context. But then you have a game like the new Master of Orion. I'm, I'm I'm sorry to pick on them particularly, but you still have the node-based context, but now you're moving in a Civ uh, style, and it just ends up taking up about five times as much time. It's significantly more clunky, and it's more difficult. And to me, that's probably a symptom of somebody who plays a lot of Civilization, who wants to make a Master of Orion game, and decides that he... You know, he's just going to do what he knows and doesn't really think that through. So there's an issue I see with, um, with copying uncritically. Copying itself is not an issue at all. The other issue um, that I see is that you're sort of stuck in a vicious sort of tension point, I guess you could say, between big teams and small teams in a big team, you have to have everybody on the same page. You're making design documents and it's working more like a production line and it needs to by necessity. Uh, and you can work, you can work faster. You can put out more impressive looking things. You can increase the presentation, but you're not going to be as maneuverable in your design. And there's like a, there's a quote from the Joker in the, in the dark night. I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, that uh, nobody panics when there's a plan, even when the plan is horrifying. And I think the same thing is somewhat true when you have like this get, when you have this design document that everybody's following. The the very act of putting everything in a plan that's followed in sort of a formulaic fashion uh, makes it hard to see what is or isn't working. Uh, so I would say. Ideally, probably with a 4X game, you're working with a small team that can be more uh, reflective on the design, but at the same time, you have a big enough and a skilled enough team that you can hit the presentation points and put out a really polished experience. So I know we don't see eye to eye on Interstellar Space Genesis, but I think that's an awesome game. And I'm not much of a Master of 2 fan. But uh, I think that uh, it clearly shows that the designers there were thinking about these questions when they were designing it. But, of course, you know, there's a few issues with the presentation. Now, if you were to take the design of Interstellar Space Genesis and mix it with the presentation of the Master Brian Conquer the Stars, I think you'd have a really great game. Besides that, I think there's another larger tension point, and that's between... I'm not sure how many people are actually even thinking this way, but that tension point would be between abstractness and concreteness, where basically it's easier to make things elegant and strategically deep the more abstract you go, and the more concrete you go, the easier it is to make things immersive and interesting. There's a reason why everybody playing Civilization isn't just playing chess, go, or poker. These are all much more strategically deep games than Civilization, and there's no question about it. But you can't put yourself in in the position of an emperor or a king or the leader of a city state. You cannot role play. You can't release your imagination in the same way. And uh, so, a game like Civilization or Master Varion just hits those points in a way that a more abstract game cannot. And I think it's a large percentage of the reason why I find Sword of the Stars One and Master Varion One as compelling as I do, because it. They tend to be fairly concrete, but not nearly as concrete as a lot of other 4X games. And that allows them to focus more on the overall strategic implications in the design. And you'd also definitely have diminishing returns with increasing concreteness. So if you have a Go board and you're playing with black and white pebbles, that's almost completely abstract then you make them into solar systems and that's significantly more concrete that's amazing infinitely more concrete you put planets on those solar systems you're quite a bit more concrete but not as much as the previous step you put continents on those planets same thing you put you know cities on those continents you could go down to modeling individual citizens but with each step you're you're gaining less in terms of the ability to roleplay, and you're creating a much more complex system that's difficult to balance. The issue with complex systems is that there are so many interactions, and you end up with such a complex system that it's difficult to see how everything interacts. And you don't necessarily lose strategic depth, but you do gain noise. And if, you're, if your signal-to-noise ratio is high enough in terms of strategic signal, non-strategic noise, it ends up being that you may as well not be strategic at all. So, for example, if 90% of your game comes down to micromanaging your economy correctly, and it's a purely internal problem, and 10% comes down to you know, making the correct strategic decisions, then you can probably win by making no correct strategic decisions and just micromanaging everything correctly, especially against an artificial intelligence that, you know, has a set level that it's going to play at and it probably isn't acting very strategically. At the same time, it's a little bit more complicated than that because you can basically normalize out the non strategic noise. Uh, in a multiplayer context, if you have, say, two pro civilization players, And let's say that Civilization has a signal, or let's just say it's a random game because I'm not speaking about Civilization in particular, but let's just say it's a 4X game with a very low signal-to-noise ratio. It's almost completely noise. But those two players, they play all the non-strategic internal problems, all the micromanagement, all the math and memorization puzzles. They both play it perfectly. You've basically equalized out the noise. It may as well not exist uh, all that's left at that point is the strategy. At the same time, it's a, you're probably left with a very, I guess you could say, a very tedious game at that point where you're just doing so much boilerplate stuff. How to say this politely? I'm not sure. It's hard. It's hard. I don't necessarily get the impression that most of the genre is thinking in these terms, in terms of the people who are designing 4X games. I could. I I could be completely wrong there, but um, you know, the things like the diplomacy modifiers, it seems after you think about it, at least it seems like an easy solution to drive an externality. Uh, But you have so many games coming out that uh, just have diplomacy modifiers that have feature X. And in a sense, it feels a little bit like paint by numbers. I see a lot of that. I see a lot less of that coming from the indies than from the big guys. Although I don't play much delirious that might be the biggest uh, exception. I know they get a lot of flack because they're changing everything and everybody thinks that a previous version was the best, but it's obvious that they're trying a lot and that they're trying to do unique and novel things, and I really appreciate that. Amplitude as well. It's like, uh, I haven't played Endless Legend, really. I hear it's the best of the series. You could say that both of the endless base sort of combat, neither... Was as good as it could be, but at the same time, it's obvious that they put a lot of thought into it and that they, you know, they try to do something novel and unique. So it might be that I'm being way too pessimistic and there's more hope there. It also might be that I'm too full of myself and <laughs> thinking that I'm thinking along in ways that other people aren't. It might just be also that the things that I think are important just aren't really. That important, and people just want a fun game. They don't care about strategic signal to noise ratios, and that last one is probably closest to the truth. Although I would say that a lot of design problems in forex games, I don't think people come to realize until they've put in a lot of time with the game. Which actually brings me to another philosophical point, which is, I guess you could say, uh, fundamental. Strategic depth versus incidental strategic depth. So, and here's the example that I use: is say you have chess, and you have the Shannon number, which is one to, or sorry, ten to the power of one hundred and twenty, which is the lower bound for the number of moves in a chess game. If you have two sort of godlike beings, if you have two cues that are playing chess, probably they they know that either white will win or black will win. Or it will be a draw 100 percent of the time and play optimally because there's a finite number of moves that you can do. So for being like uh, like Q from Star Trek, chess isn't strategic at all. But because there's only about 10 to the power of 80 atoms even in the visible universe, if you converted the entire universe to being a giant computer that just played chess, you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't come any close to reaching the the Shannon number even if uh, you know uh, one atom held the entire position and not just one piece so even the universe as a chess computer couldn't solve chess so even though fundamentally maybe it's not strategic in practice it is strategic simply because we have those those limitations at the same time if you envision two godlike beings playing poker and they can't see each other's cards that is strategic fundamentally so because it has to do with psychology it has to do with What you're thinking, I'm thinking, Uh, whether you can bluff or not, it's not just a simple math or memorization test. And the same is somewhat true, I think, for 4X games, where except for unlike chess, uh, you eventually learn everything that you need to do and everything becomes like a flowchart. But before the point where it becomes a flowchart, where you're saying, I want to do X because I think it will give me Y, that's strategic, but eventually you end up being i'm going to do x because i know that x is uh going to maximize all this stuff that's the most important thing for me to maximize and that's not strategic anymore so i would say probably w- what happens with a lot of forex game gamers and i think uh, a lot of forex gamers are constantly sort of bouncing from game to game thinking will this be the one will this be the one and you know falling in love and falling out of love with games is that they play these games they seem deep they figure out what they need to do they approach it like a flow chart. and eventually they realize hey this isn't actually that deep I can just do X y and z every time and it becomes very repetitive and it's not strategic I'm probably speaking way too long uh do you, do you have any thoughts
0: <laughs> again like I said the reason I asked you all those questions is because I I do value what you say and a lot of what you have said in the past seems like you've you've given a lot of critical thought to so I mean, everything you've just said to me, of course, it just it makes sense.
1: <laughs> oh, thanks. But, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, there's probably, for any 4X game, there's a million different intangibles that, regardless of how sound your philosophy is or how bad it is, are going to make a lot more difference than your philosophy. Like, I don't think Mass of 2 is a particularly well-designed game, but it's the, in my opinion, it's the best-presented 4X game of all time. It's just a joy to play. It draws you into the universe. It may not be strategic. The combat might fall apart at the end when you have so many ships that are just loaded up with plasma cannons and you just destroy the enemy fleet no matter what they have before they're even able to move, uh, even though it takes forever. And you're clicking the same, the same buildings on the same colonies a million times, just following a very strict build order. And you know, all that sounds terrible, but the game's a joy to play. It's it's great. I I, I, I love Master of Orion 2 just for what it is, and that's all the intangible elements, the way everything comes together, the way it's presented, the way the GNN robots come, the way the scientist guy is animated, the way that the combat happened with the little guys running towards each other, seeing your planets grow, and um, Honestly, I think a lot of that's the stuff that Thomas Galaxia lacks that I that I want need to add to go from something that's merely well designed to something that's great.
0: So before we wrap up, I'm going to go back to something you said way back at the beginning of this podcast, and that I don't like galactic councils. Can you give me a quick little rundown on as to why why not?
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah, I like galactic councils. I don't like galactic councils as a way to end the game, uh, simply because. Well, this is also philosophical. And again, I think it tends to work all right in Master of Orion one and two simply because it adds flavor to the game. But from a purely design standpoint, again, it's sort of like this one way street where if everybody was voting in their best interest, nobody would ever get elected. And it, definitely does not translate into multiplayer at all when you have multiple players or even seat multiplayer, but it, it adds flavor. So again, the, the idea there is probably keep the flavor, lose the bad design, come up with some way to have your cake and eat it too. Um, so, and you know, uh, I'll, I'll give a throw to Galsiv 3. I think just, I don't know if endless space does it. I haven't played in a long time. Uh, even master Brian three uh, where they do these galactic councils where you sort of vote on different ordinances. Um, I think that's a good way to get the flavor without uh, getting the bad design. And I mean, the other thing about galactic councils is that it's a way to, you know, end the game without the tedious mop up. But again, there are probably better ways to do that. I might just, I haven't, I don't have any better way to do that yet. I have a few thoughts. It might just be that I end up copying something like Age of Wonder 3's uh, system, which is fantastic. That's a great idea. And another thought that I had was, you know, you have various ways to end the game and one or two of them become apparent throughout the course of the game. So you might find out that you have to activate five beacons and hold them for 10 turns, or there might be interdimensional aliens that uh, you need to deal with. And just sort of have that as more of a random event that sort of adds a little bit more individual flavor to each uh, specific game instance that you have. Yeah, no promises there either. It's just something that I've thought of doing.
0: Yeah, this has all been great. So I, in our lead up to finishing this off, I did want to ask, is there anything else you wanted to mention about your Kickstarter or Dominus Galaxy or anything that you want anybody to know, everybody to know, everyone that will ever listen to this?
1: Probably, but I think we're already over our time budget, aren't we?
0: <laughs> no, I mean, is there is uh, is there okay. something that you want to leave on, you know, just a note or a particular anything, really, anything that you want to leave on? Please
1: give me money.
0: <laughs> That's the, there. You go.
1: That's perfect.
0: <laughs> that is definitely. The, yep. There's no better way to, to say that on oh, um, this one.
1: Oh, so sorry. Last thing. Last, uh, I guess there's one more thing. Uh, this is sort of in the ties in with the please give me money thing. Is that. Uh, To an extent, you know, I might be a sociopath who's lying to you when I say this, but I want to work on, I do want to work on Dominus Galaxia for as long as I can. If I can be making money working on this like five years, 10 years after its release, I want to do so. Like uh, a weird thought experiment I always have is, you know, Kerberos. What if they had just kept making sort of the Stars 1 and putting out expansions and rebranding that and repackaging it and reselling it? I have a feeling that they'd probably have done a pretty good job sort of the stars one might be the exception to that simply because it sort of came into its own not right away but with all those expansions and the complete edition it really became a different beast but if i could do that with dominus galaxy i'd I'd love to the other thing that i don't want to do i can't make any promises here but i don't want it to be one of those games that has like twenty thousand dlc simply because i as a player i really dislike that like especially for 4X games that, you know, I don't really didn't really get into, but I'm thinking, you know what, maybe maybe these DLCs if I had all of them, they'd fix things and I'd like it then. But I'm not going to pay money for a game that I'm not that enthusiastic about to see if I become more enthusiastic about it. So I have a few ideas there. The one is First of all, any sort of gameplay feature would never be under a DLC. I can make that promise right away that it will be content, other races, and so forth. The other idea is just give everything away for free, do the Minecraft thing. Again, Minecraft is probably an exception to the rule. And hopefully that drives more sales. If I can get away with that, I'd love to do that. The other thought is that I'll put out DLC, but slowly sort of decrease their price until they become $0 and are just rolled into the base game. But, uh, yeah, um, I just, uh, I guess want to throw out there that, um, you know, you sort of have to take my word for it and you can decide whether or not you want to do that on your own. But, um, if you help me out with the Kickstarter or with funding early access, whatever it ends up being to the extent that's possible, I'll try and, you know, do what's right for the, do what's right for the players and the customers. Um, and again you know i can't make any promises it might be nobody buys the game and i have to go get a boring desk job to the extent that i can that's that's the philosophy that i'm going to use
0: i like it jeff and to be fair and to 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 be open to the the listeners here i i i do feel like we've gotten to know each other pretty decently and i always felt like your heart's in the right place so if you're saying something, and you've been very clear and, and upfront about you know your intentions versus what could be reality, then I appreciate that. So I think everybody should give you your money, because I want to see this game finished.
1: <laughs> well, thanks, Rob. I hope they do. I'll be uh, one of them. Yeah. So
0: if you end up kickstarting it, I absolutely will kickstart it, because I feel like you have a... you have a And this is something that hopefully you guys will see through the demo, and I also plan to do a short little like Let's Explore video to show off what Dominus Galaxia looks like and plays like. But oh, that'd be I great. Think, once people see what you're doing here, I think they're going to want to invest and, and, and be a part of it. So good luck to you, Jeff. Well, We're going to be watching yeah. you, man.
1: I hope so, too. And thanks for the opportunity to go on your podcast. You take care.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Glad, glad to have you. I'm glad that you took the time out of your day. I know you're busy and I know you're uh, trying to you know work towards that Kickstarter. So thank you for joining me tonight. And like I said, best of luck. We'll be watching you.
1: Take care, Rob.
0: You too, Jeff. And this was Rob for Explorinate. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.